Here's your host, Gary Cacciolio. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Everything Imaginable. I am your host, Gary Cacciolillo. And before we get started, I want to thank everybody for listening and also thank the contributors to this show, who are Candice Sanderson, author of The Reluctant Messenger, Joseph Simkovic, author of How to Kiss the Universe, Ms. Aida, author, psychic, spellcaster, root worker, and witch. You can find her at MsAida.com, M-I-S-S-A-I-D-A. Also, this episode is being sponsored by Ginger Glasser. And you can find Ginger at tarotbyginger.com. She is a tarot reader, evidential medium, and psychic. And that is at tarotbyginger.com. And also, this episode is being sponsored by Alan Questell. You can find him at uncommonsensing.com. And also, his new book is available on Amazon. It is called Intentional Acts of Kindness. And now, without further ado, our guest for today is Paul Joseph Rovelli, and he is a author, occultist, and the director of the Gnostic Church. Thanks for coming on today. Well, glad to be here. Just Gnostic Church of Light. Figured I'd get the, the full uh, oh, promo. Oh, got there. the LBX. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for bringing that out, because I forgot it, too. <laughs> <laughs> so, um... Yeah, we were talking earlier. Last time I talked to, you, we talked about doing an episode on Kabbalah, and um, oh, it, you know, Kabbalah is like the really deep subject, man, because it's interpreted in a lot of different ways. Sometimes it's, you know, it's like that as a psychology model of conscious and subconscious and ego and collective consciousness. Some people look at it. I think, I think now even people are starting to look at it as like in the, from a genetic point of view. <laughs> You know, so it's really evolved from like what was written in the Sephiri Ezra to the way we're looking at it now. So, what well, is- I think be careful there too because the Sephiri Ezra is a Jewish document mm-hmm. and that feeds one giant misnomer about the Kabbalah that it is either essentially Jewish or um, somehow. Uh, uh, invented by the Jews, and, and I would disagree with both notions. Mm-hmm. Where do you think where where did it originate from? Do you think it's more of an Egyptian origin? No, I think it's more of a Greek origin. Actually, Greek? Um, I think uh, Greek ideas uh, and putting Greece at the heart or origin of the Western mystery tradition. I think it's Greek ideas that affected uh, Jewish ideas when the Jews encountered the Greeks, when they you know, literally moved into that area. Hmm. Um, they discovered that, and I talk about this in my book, uh, Thelema and the Greek Kabbalah. Um, when they discovered that the Greeks also placed a value of numbers on their uh, alphabet, the Jews actually then for the first time did the same thing. So if you look at a Hebrew clock, you'll see, you know, Aleph is one, Beth is two, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Um, this, this occurred in Greece before it happened in um, Jewish lore. Hmm. I had no idea they did it first. I'm sorry? I didn't know that it was the Greeks that did that first. That attributed yeah, letters, um, I mean, um, numbers to the letters. And also, like, meanings, too, right? The letters, each letter has a meaning. 
yes, the, the, the Greeks also put meanings on their letters. Certainly there's an important uh, notion when you say I am the alpha and the omega. A really does mean beginning and omega really does mean last. Um, I think the the Jews probably played that up much better than the Greeks. Mm-hmm. I think the Jewish Kabbalah was probably more uh, directly comprehensive um, because the Greeks already had a philosophical tradition. I don't think they had to encode it into a Kabbalah, where the Jews really didn't. They needed a way to explain the books that they were writing in Kabbalistic terms, what would be Kabbalistic terms. Now, remember, the Jewish Kabbalah, even though the Jews first turned their uh, alphabet into numbers uh, when they met the Greeks, and we're talking around the time of the Old Testament, which is approximately 600 BCE, Mm -hmm. uh, the Kabbalah itself isn't really formalized into, you know, a set of documents until about 1100 CE. So you've got 1,700 years between when the Jews played with numbers and when they put a formal Kabbalah together. That doesn't mean there wasn't an oral tradition developing in all that time. But Do, do you think it was exclusive to these cultures? Because there are other models that are similar, too, like the tree of Yggdrasil. Uh, there's some Asian philosophies also that depict the tree. Yeah, we can thank... Uh, we can thank the 1980s forward for that. You know, it started pre-internet, and then the internet exacerbated it. Mm-hmm. The tree of Yggdrasil. Yes, the um, uh, the Germanic cultures had trees, and so many cultures had trees at the origin of their uh, religions. But this tree of Yggdrasil, this is all pop Kabbalah garbage. Hmm. You know, the uh, formal Kabbalah. Uh, there are very few. I mean, the Greeks and and the uh, Jews are at the heart of its origin. I would argue for an English Kabbalah, but that would be really, really new, um, and only from the you know the uh, the doctrine that's arising, uh, you know, in Thelemic circles. Um, and that's really about it. The rest of it is we'll make a Kabbalah. We'll have a Kabbalah of the witches. We'll have a Kabbalah of the shoe shiners. We'll have a Kabbalah of people who wear glasses on Thursdays. You know, it's it's just it, it's pop nonsense, but it sells books. Mm-hmm. And that's really all it is. After that, I'm <laughs> I'm not going to do that. I'm very very accommodating. Right. So, so what is the Kabbalah used for? Like, how is it useful? Is it just a philosophy? Um, no, it's much more than a philosophy. Uh, but I will say it this way. It's a philosophical system. Mm-hmm. And that, you should take me literally on that. But let's examine what a philosophical system is. Um, Schopenhauer and Kant and Hume and Nietzsche and all these other world-class philosophers, all of their philosophies were philosophical systems. Um, So 
for those philosophers, like especially the German idealists who were metaphysicians, uh, you know, even the French existentialists who are really a part of that tradition, um, those philosophies were worldviews, how you perceive things and about your perception of life and about your ontology, how you understand being in the world. Um, and the Kabbalah, Hebrew, Greek, Thelemic, um, certainly addresses that and then becomes something much, much more. Yes, there's a magic, and, you know, and, um, you know, whether you get formulas for understanding the psyche and your consciousness, um, and these get confused and conflated with other things. Like there's people that actually believe in a lot of them that you can go up and open the Goetia and, you know, some spirit, and you can tell it to go run and do your bidding. I need 50 bucks. Go get it for me. Um, and they don't understand that these spirits are a part of their psyche. They belong inside their head. And all you're doing is bringing out a part of yourself, putting it in that magic mirror, so to speak, so that you can examine and learn about yourself and understand a part of yourself. So that part of the practical Kabbalah gets misread. There's literal Kabbalah, there's wordplay, you know. Um, if we say the right combination of words, you might get an aha experience. You might go, oh, that's what that is, you know. And so there's, there is that literal Kabbalah, and we can use that to look at Holy Writ and get deeper and more meaningful insight. And that's going to produce a sense of profundity in the mind that's going to raise your consciousness if we want to use some kind of hippy-dippy term. Uh, but I think that's a generally, or a phrase I should have said, and, and I think that's generally understood most people what we mean by that, even if they've never had their consciousness raised. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. There's a few other ways that we can go at Kabbalah. We can build an, an understanding of of the body, of, of that distance between us and the divine and what that might possibly mean. Um, it's suspected that the great German philosopher uh, uh, Hegel uh, was uh, a Kabbalist, although some still assert that he's a, a he was a Christian, but I, I think it's really true he was a Kabbalist. And, you know, he would say that um, the involutionary or downward tracing of the tree of life is the the divine coming into being in the world and coming to know the world of humanity whereas the tracing up the tree is humanity evolving up to the divine and coming to know the divine directly and hegel would put that through history as would um heidegger later on so that uh, history is the unfolding of the divine in the world Hmm. Kabbalah is far more complicated. <laughs> right? Is it a is it a creation story? Um, or design? I think the tree of life directly is a creation story. Yes, I think it's very much a creation story, but I don't think that creation story is. Uh, although, remember, the Kabbalah does build itself. At least the Jewish Kabbalah definitely builds itself off of the Book of Genesis, which is the Book of Creation. Um, 
but I think more specifically and more accurately, the Kabbalah is an ontological creation story, how we come to be. Whereas um, it still builds itself off the book of Genesis. So the uh, first word of Genesis, Bereshit, in the beginning. And that word, there's books written on it in, in uh, Jewish lore. Um, just on that one word. And so if you were really a deeply studied Jewish Kabbalist, you would have studied that word so intensely that you, it might take you 20 years. Uh, I've done maybe 20 days worth of study on that word. So a Jewish Kabbalist would probably laugh at me. But I got everything I needed out of that word because I'm not lost in Jewish lore. I'm lost in something else. <laughs> <laughs> Right, that's interesting. You know, because you mention it going down. You know, going down is like the creation story, and then going back up the path working is the return story. I don't want to say return. Okay, there is no return. We're here now in the best of all possible worlds, mm -hmm. and we're always going to be here. So it's not a return, mm -hmm. and I think that's a problem with a lot of new age circles. We're returning back. We're going mm -hmm. home all this kind of stuff. It's not a return. It's a way to get to know the divine. Okay. And, and the involutionary story, the downward tracing of those paths mm -hmm. is a way for the divine to get to know us. And guess what happens? You kind of end up discovering each other to the point that you realize you are each other. Well, that's one of the things about Kabbalah, right? Is, is the energy sort of starts at like Cather and then goes through the other Sephiroth and manifests here. Um, yes, that, that's a very simplistic way to say it, mm -hmm. but if I had to say it in some way uh, to, to just introduce somebody to the Kabbalah in general, I might just say the same thing. <laughs> yeah, it's... Okay. You know, we have, um, in the book of the Concealed Mystery, translated by McGregor Mathers, mm -hmm. um, we have... I think the most marvelous way of looking at creation, the divine mother and the divine father, and we're talking Hakma and Bina on the tree of life, the second and third Sephiroth, um, made it. And they essentially mate in Da'at. And that's the invisible non-Sephiroth. Mm -hmm. That, now, before I continue that story, I'm going to explain Da'at a little bit, because if you read uh, Sefer Yetzirah, it will say there's 10, not 11 Sephiroth. So Da'at doesn't exist. But when you trace up, it's the abyss. It's not Da'at. When you trace down, it's Da'at and not the abyss. Okay? We go into the Thelema, whether we're talking uh, uh, the Pan is the progenitor or the... Um, uh, uh, the uh, I forget what the... The Latin word is for destroyer. Um, but um, in Da'at, they mate. And you could say that that mating, um, the, uh, uh, the union there is the early part of the Adam Kadmon. They produce, uh, when the rabbit hits home, they produce uh, Tifereth, the son with whom the daughter is hidden within. The son 
which Christians play around with and call that Jesus. Um, the sun is uh, the Adam Kadma. And, and this is uh, now that divine light that is at Kether, which kind of became that seminal quasi-light in Da'at that is now taking on some substance, but not so much, I would say astral substance in Tiferet, will eventually become material substance in Kether. Um, and that's where the daughter comes out in Kether, when God sends down his blessing in the Hebrew Kabbalah, because the Hebrews are... Um, they, they, they came to a point where they, they got rid of the goddess in their culture. So the, the way they keep the, the hint of the goddess is uh, by making her God's blessing, the Shekinah. So that tip that not only can uh, the son or the prince come down, but so can the daughter of the princess. But she waits until God's blessing. Um, this gets reversed in ancient Gnostic literature, whereas uh, she is the goddess and is therefore the thought of the god, which is ineffable. And indeed, Kether, which is the first Sephirah, is the actual god. That is the light, and that is the ineffable. That's the hour of the Ain Sof hour, the threefolded veil of the negative. Did I lose you? No. Oh, okay, good. Um, maybe did I lose half your audience? <laughs> maybe. <laughs> um, it, it's very heady stuff, and and it takes a, a bit of insight to see. So, if you ask me to what to say about it, you got it right when you really created that simple version. Because I think my more complex version. Uh, takes more way than it gives you. Hmm. It's, it's interesting, like, when I was listening to you, though, how you broke it up, where the top three, you know, the Kether, and I always forget all the names of it, but the top three are sort of like in that divine state, you know, and then you have the bottom seven materializing. Because sometimes um, I, I've seen it broken up into, like, four completely, like, in, in the four sections... The four worlds of yeah, the Yeah, the four worlds. Okay. And that's um, uh, the four worlds kind of divine things up a little bit. Um, the first three sephiroth, as you say, um, that that triad points up. The other two triads point down. Okay, and then Malkut hangs pendant. And that triad triad, shall we say, uh, or uh, I think even in this book on, on Hegel's Kabbalah. Um, they, they point to the notion that the German uh, idealists in Hegel's time, and we're talking 19th century, early 19th century, um, the German idealists felt that everything above the abyss was outside the realm of space-time. And that's those first three sephiroth. Below that, everything is below the abyss. Now, when you read that book of the Concealed Mystery, the next are not the next seven, but the next six. And they are the Ruach, the soul. Now, that is one section of the four worlds, and two of those worlds are really in the top three Sephiroth. 
Okay, and the last world is materialization, the Malkut. But the astral world, which is the world of the Ruach, the psyche in modern terms, or the soul. And that's centered at Tifereth. There's five Sephiroth that float around it. And then from the soul, that one thing hangs pendant is the body itself, the material body. And so we can break that up into essentially three sections at that point. Below the abyss, we are in space-time. Mm -hmm. That's why even the, the uh, astral realm is there. So when people start telling you that they can uh, fly through space-time in their astral body and end up on Neptune and they've now got a diamond body or what have you, they're showing that they don't know what they're talking about. Um, yes, we can imagine ourselves doing things like that. Um, but we're really taking excursions into our own mind. That's really what we're doing. The abyss itself straddles time and not time. So you're in this quasi, shall we say, dangerous place because insanity is what happens if you don't straddle that well. Hmm. And well, that's where so, we so where does imagination begin and end from a Kabbalistic point of view? Hmm. Um, I can only give you my own point of view on that. Okay, mm -hmm. I, I, I would hate any authoritarian answer. Uh, but the imagination is the paradigm that we all live in. Everything is imagination. So, um, you know, you've imagined a certain type of world. That's why you chose to marry your wife and raise your children and do the things that you do. Because we imagine a paradigm, and those paradigms are the archetypes of our culture. Whether we're the Marlboro man smoking tobacco and shooting people in our backyard, um, or you know we're you know the the hippy dippy love triangle that's you know happening in our bedroom on Friday night, um, these all fit into a greater paradigm that, shall we call it, Western industrialized culture, where certainly, say, an Aboriginal culture in the Amazon rainforest would not see anything in that way whatsoever. You know, the, the uh, ladies certainly wouldn't cover themselves up, you know what I'm saying? And the men would not be like, ooh la la, at that either. Right? The, the, the world has a completely different paradigm. You know, and so everything that we imagine, um, everything imaginable, <laughs> plug for you there. Um, everything imaginable is imagined, and it's our imagination that moves our day. It helps us to evaluate and comprehend even the material body, much less the uh, mind and the so-called spiritual body. imagination but then how do you define sanity and insanity if everything is imagination that means that everything that but, i'm imagining uh, has to be real right no, no it doesn't have to be well, well, but we have to ground ourselves in consensus imagination so we so have i have to hang out them. in everybody else's imagination basically um no we we have certain things that we agree on mm -hmm. Okay, like you have to wear pants to work. 
Okay. If you don't wear pants to work, you may be arrested at work or on your way to your car. I don't know. Unless you live over by me, because in the state of Vermont, as long as you walk out of your house naked, you're allowed to stay naked all day. That's pretty good. Okay, you go shopping, <laughs> you know. Um, but we have those paradigms, and I'm using kind of a silly example. Mm-hmm. But we have that consensus reality. Uh, I am constantly at these so-called spiritual people that, you know, preach the losing of the ego. And I call them ego losers, hyphen, ego, hyphen, losers. I call them ego losers. And uh, these ego losers keep telling you that you have to lose your ego. Well, look at the homeless guy who's schizophrenic, walking down the middle of a busy road on the white line, yelling at the cars passing by and screaming at the sky. That is somebody who has successfully lost his ego. Okay? Heaven forbid you ever lose your ego. We need consensus reality because consensus reality teaches us how to behave and get along with each other. And we have to be able to do that successfully if we're going to accomplish anything within this paradigm that we call Western culture. But aren't we giving up our free will for that? I would rather have non-consensus reality where I can have complete creative royalties. I love what Nietzsche says on that. Um, We have neither free will nor the lack of free will. It's not about free will. Mm -hmm. It's about will. Okay? And will is what you choose to emanate. Now, in that, you're constantly at negotiation between your inner life and your outer life. Mm-hmm. Your outer life is going to impose certain constraints on you. Um, the OTO initiation is interesting in that, their Minerva initiation. It says that while the tent itself, the free-flowing sheets, um, have that certain, shall we say, free will, it is only from the discipline of the pole in the middle that it can become a tent, that it holds those sheets up. So it is our own inner discipline and the outer discipline of the world that helps us to attain liberty, not freedom, but liberty. Freedom says, I have the right to punch you in your your nose and shoot all your kids. Okay. Liberty says, I can't yell fire in a movie theater. Okay, when I can't yell fire in the movie theater, that means I and everyone around me can attend the movie safely. That means your wife and kids can depend on you not killing them when you get angry. (laughs) And therefore, we all have a chance to function in the world. So the world presents certain limitations to us, but they're vital and important limitations. Sometimes the world puts too many limitations on us. Sometimes it doesn't give us enough. I think of somebody like Michael Jackson who didn't get enough limitations. Mm-hmm. So he started consuming weird drugs to go to sleep at night and maybe sleeping with some children because there was nobody there to stop him. What would we do if we had absolute freedom? We'd probably fizzled to a pile of dust. Hmm. But that we have some limitation. We have the chance to flourish, and I can write that book, and he can make that business, and she can, you know, create that, you know, marvelous uh, whatever. Okay, and 
and uh, boy can meet girl and and girl can meet girl and whatever else we allow for some things and we don't allow for other things hmm. and we have to decide what those parameters are within our paradigm mm-hmm. so it's like the box it's like a box where we can create whatever we want within that box yeah I can swim anywhere I want in the fishbowl I just can't get outside the fishbowl because when I get outside the fishbowl, I die. <laughs> Do you? We don't know because you haven't been. We don't know anybody who's been outside the fishbowls, so we don't know if somebody well, died. Well, we know plenty that have been outside the fishbowl, but they died, <laughs> so they can't tell us anything. <laughs> you know. <what> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, that's just really the truth. It, it, we, you know, if you get stuck in the box, if you buy your own PR. And you can't, um, you can't uh, think outside the box. Mm-hmm. I want to think outside the fishbowl because I'm going to look through the plain glass and I'm going to see, you know, a record player, a couch, a TV set. I'm going to swim around the bowl and see all these things. For the sleepers, every time I go around the fishbowl, I'm seeing it all for the first time because fish only has one second worth of memory. Mm-hmm. For those that are awake, they begin to see outside the fish fishbowl, and they begin to recognize. And they they see you spinning a phonograph on uh, uh, Friday night, and they see you watching cartoons on Saturday morning, and they start to get an idea of what these things are. And soon they can formulate, oh, this is entertainment, you know. And and you know, you start to see other things, you know, what I'm saying that's going on, and the kids are playing Monopoly games, and you're you're trying to remember what, how when it felt good to put your arm around your wife. <laughs> And all of that. And so we can begin to glean a lot more out of things by thinking outside the box. Even though we got to live inside a certain box, the more we can bring those elements inside our fishbowl, inside the box, the richer that box becomes until I have all my favorite little things in the box. And these are a few of my favorite things. You know, and we put them in the box. We have our little rock collection and we keep our baseball cards and whatever else. And we like to go through that box and say, oh, these are great treasures. So from a Kabbalistic point of view, is there such a thing as enlightenment? Um, yes and no. I mean, I do hate the word enlightenment because enlightenment evokes that new age image. Um, you know that picture that you get for somebody that's selling you the latest uh, new age product or book or what have you. And it's a picture of that guy or that couple and they have that happy, so contented look on their face. You know, and they're selling this enlightenment as happiness. And that's never going to happen. Mm-hmm. Get over it right now. If you're out chasing happiness, it's the one thing you won't find. You can you can find acceptance. You can begin to realize that the world is not only the best of all possible worlds, but exactly as it mm-hmm. should be. And where you encounter a problem with the world, you know, when your wife leaves you and your father dies or what have you, where you in, in, encounter those things, um. We're going to experience sadness, and we're going to mourn. Okay, we mourn the loss of a best friend, uh, getting an F on the math test in grade school. We're going to mourn those things, um, but 
um, you accept them. You accept that this is the way the world is. And you can learn from it. You get that F on that math test. You study a little bit harder and it turns into a C until finally, you know, you're taking the, the uh, math whiz test and you're helping Einstein create the theory of relativity. Um, so we find that our failures and our sadnesses come along with our joys and our happiness. And really one is worthless without the other look at the spoiled child the spoiled child knows they're mad at everything every time they don't get the candy bar they want right but you know true true story Um, I got to drive my parents car for the first time on the by myself without them there on the day I had to register at college and I drove up to college in the parking lot and I decided that I could cut across without following the lanes because there weren't that many cars in the parking lot. I cut across, of course, and I got into a fender bed. I went home and I was mortified. I know my parents only had a $500 deductible, which I guess was really a lot of money now that I think about it. But in my mind then, it wasn't much because um, we're talking 1979. <laughs> and um, I was mortified. Now... Bass player in my band, uh, freshman year, freshman into sophomore year, um, was the son of a gynecologist, very wealthy family from a very wealthy town in my county. And he re- he told me a story about he was driving his uh, mother's Maserati in Mexico. He smashed it into a, a, a telephone pole and he called her on the phone and said, can you send me another one? And I thought of the difference between me and him it was that day that i realized how strong our differences were we were both in the same punk band but he was pretending to be you know working class i was working class and that's the difference so let's be very very thankful that we're not happy like mr and mrs you know new age uh, bookseller Mm -hmm. okay because if we ever got to that, we'd be functionally dead. Yeah, I don't think happiness equates with enlightenment. I, yeah, and I do think a lot of people it's sold that way. I can totally agree. Like for people think like bliss or happiness or ecstasy or states of enlightenment, but when you're happy, you're still living in a polarized environment. If you're happy, then it has to be the opposite. To me, enlightenment is a place of perfect neutrality it's being the the axle of a wheel yes and 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 certainly the tarot card the wheel teaches us that right Mm -hmm. we get to a certain place where we get to the middle of the wheel and we can see life moving around us like john lennon said i'm just sitting here watching the wheels go around and round (laughs) um so we 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 have that you made me think of something i'm going to try and grab it again um it's not a neutrality, though. It's an acceptance. It, it's a realization that we can control our response to these events. So I'm getting fired from one job. I'm getting a, a you know a thoughtful gift from my wife for my birthday. I'm you know getting cursed out by these people, and these other people are are calling me and saying nice things. And I control these events by taking responsibility for them. And that becomes the key. So enlightenment is gnosis. It's knowledge. The more I understand the world, 
the more quote-unquote enlightened I become. And because people have these this pseudo idea of enlightenment, when they in spiritual quarters, you know, connect with me and, and they, you know, their angry criticism usually turns out, oh, you're so friggin' smart. You must think you are. so. And I'm like, well, I'm, you know, I feel, you know, I say to myself, I feel bad for you, you know, um, because you're not equating enlightenment with knowledge, with knowing. The more you know about your life and the world and what's going on around you, Kabbalah, the more enlightenment, the more filled with the light of knowledge that you have. Now, there is something deeper than uh, knowledge. There is something deeper than our intellect. And, and let's call our intellect consciousness. Mm -hmm. There is something deeper than that. And that's a sensibility that um, certainly the German idealists would call metaphysics. It's an intangible, an intuition of something. And that sensibility, um, uh, that sensibility is, again, that intuition, that feeling. It's uh, outside of the scope of our intellect. It's outside of the scope of our words and our understanding. Uh, and we don't use, well, it's subjective. It's entirely subjective. And in metaphysics, it's speculative. So I can give you Schopenhauer's concept of metaphysics as I can give you Crowley's concept of metaphysics as I can give you Kant or Hegel or um, whomever. And I can't tell you that they are giving you truth. As a matter of fact, most of them all disagree with each other. Schopenhauer particularly hated Hegel, even though they both loved Kant. And, and they were at odds with each other on the university campus. Uh, um, so, in metaphysics, whether we're talking Kabbalah, which is metaphysics, uh, or we're talking um, the sensibility of the will, which is Schopenhauer, um, we're talking about something I cannot prove to you. It's intangible by the tools of science. So, I can't prove anything with it. I can prove that the earth is round. I can, can prove uh, how a, a computer chip works and that we could create one. But I can't prove to you the nature of the will. I can tell you what I think about it. And you can say, aha, that makes sense to me. Or you can say, you know, Ravelli is just an idiot. <laughs> but that's metaphysics. And as soon as somebody starts telling you that metaphysics is truth, Jesus is your Lord and Savior, and all you've got to do is love him, mm -hmm. then... You know, they're, they're throwing you a pile of shit, even if they're, what they're saying is true. But we know it can't be true. It's metaphysics. It's speculation. And your speculation is good to you. Mine is good to me. Now, we might be able to show you that I am more knowledgeable because I have read more of this book and that book and this book and that book. Um, but... Um, you may be a better expert on the metaphysics of women because you had this girl, that girl, this girl, that girl that I never had. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So your experience and your knowledge, whatever that may be, may be more or less than my experience and my knowledge. And that's about all we can argue. After that, you could have pursued a completely different angle of metaphysics than I did. And who's to say 
whose is better than whose. My daddy isn't necessarily bigger than your daddy. Right. Or you could have the same daddy and still have a different opinion. Uh, and we know a lot of brothers <laughs> and sisters that don't talk to each other anymore for just for that, right? Right. You know, it is what it is. Yeah. So, except what what do you when when it comes to metaphysics? You know, I would say like my only time the one time what brought me to kind of understand or at least have some type of grasp in my mind of, of the metaphysics of Kabbalah was from reading um, Transcendental Magic and Ritual. Uh-huh. And where, where he, he talks about, I think he called it like the astral fluid, you know? Yes. Which now we would call, I, I would equate that to you know, quantum field now that we have or, or something like that that we refer to. Yeah. Which, which is this, I like- which is this substance though, you can look at it two ways, or or even both ways at the same time. One is like you have a substance that you can mold into anything and bring it into manifestation. You, you come up with an idea, you send it out there, the idea kind of percolates, comes back down, and we create it. Or we're looking at an infinite set of probabilities, and we're just turning into the direction of the probability that we want. Okay, well, your first example, I would shoot that down. Um, And I know many, many people into the occult believe this. But let's just think about that for a minute. Okay, you can formulate an idea, send it out into the ether, and let that astral substance work on it. And then it will come back to you. So I would start, once I learned how to do that, I would start with all of the money in the world. So you'll start that. Um, I would, you know, add to that all of the food in the world just to make sure that everybody starves. Um, I would add to that all of the pretty women in the world, you know, and then I'll just kill each one off as I get sick of them because I'll make sure all the police drop dead anyway. Okay, until I'm the complete and perfect king of the world. And then I'll make sure that nobody else can get a hold of this knowledge. So if that could work, that would have already happened. Mm-hmm. So there have to be limitations. That's, that's um, one of the things that I've also <laughs> believed, though, is that like this particular substance or whatever it is in, that's the, that is the ether is always going to lean itself towards life, towards creating, not destroying. Um, that's certainly, especially in Wiccan circles, that's um, certainly the excuse that's made for mm-hmm. this impossibility. To say, well, the reason why $6 billion didn't come to you is because you're not ready for it yet. You know, or it's not in your karma, or your destiny to get that. Only if it was all that, then you would have gotten it. Mm-hmm. Okay. I don't remember in any of those instructions being told that. And um, Elvis Levy, of course, and, and I've read all his books, uh, Elvis Levy is an interesting man. But I think either he missed the notion or. Um, that was one of his famous blinds. But also, Craw- right, where, Crawley was, was claimed to be reincarnation of him, didn't he? Yeah, but Crawley disagreed with him about a lot of things. <laughs> so he just identified with him in some right. um, And reincarnation is a whole separate subject. If you want, and we have time, we'll talk about it. But um, going out there, putting something in the ether, when the ether is you... Um, I saw an interesting lecture a few weeks ago 
and um, trying to show that the mind itself was a local. It had no location. It's not located in the head. Right, non-local okay. mind. Yeah. yeah, and the way the lecturer presented it, he's standing in front of an audience, and he says to the audience, "You're looking at me." And the way you've been taught is that now the picture of me is in your mind. And he's, he turned that around and he said, no, your mind has reached all the way out to me. And that's why it receives me. So look how large the mind is. And the fact that all of you have reached out to this because you're all in the audience there. Well, you're all, your mind has all gotten that big inside of this room. And so they're all merging with each other and sort of thing. And Jung called that the zeitgeist, right? We call that mob mm -hmm. mentality, right? So, um, there's your ether in one sense. Um, in another sense, then we got it, or we can, we compatible with that, we can say that the astral is the ether. And so this is all still something of your mind. Mm -hmm. And, you know, uh, I can't hammer and stammer. Uh, as a 16-year-old saying, yelling at my parents, I want a car, I want a car, I want a car, I want a car. It's not going to work. Unless I stammer and hammer long enough, then the parents will go out and buy me a car. <laughs> Assuming they can afford to do it, right? Mm -hmm. So um, that's not creating anything out of thin air. That's just understanding the application of magical principle. Applying the right force to the right medium at the right time. Right? So... If I use the power of the pen and I write something very persuasive and I build an army around me and then that army adores me and whatever else, then I say, okay, now we're going to march on Putin and like Bogosian, we run so far until I stopped applying the right force. And then he turned around, now he's dead. <laughs> so that's the real magical formula that Crowley talks about. You know, the pen is mightier than the sword. Mm -hmm. okay? And it's the sword that I give to the pawns in the chess game. I sit back here with the pen. <laughs> mm. They go out and do the killing and the dying. So so then why did the Crowley put out like a version of the Goasha? Yes. Like with and he wrote very clearly that, that experience are, psyche, are part of the psyche, they're part uh. of the mind. Okay, but people don't want to believe that. They want to believe that they can get the high holy blowjob by saying the magical words. Well, the only magical words that are going to work is, I really love you, honey. <laughs> <laughs> They're the only words that'll work. Mm. You know, or you can put a gun to her head, but then you go to jail later. Yeah, I think one of the most difficult ones I've ever read was um, the, the, the Mage of Abramelin. Abramelin the Mage, that book, whew. like 21 days of, of being alone and fasting inside a circle. <laughs> Pretty intense. It's, it's an intense thing because it's designed to get you into an altered state. Mm -hmm. And in that altered state, you will meet your augiates, your holy guardian angel. You know, if you follow the formula to, through to some fruition. And then he'll guide you which parts of your psyche need, or she'll guide you to which parts of your psyche need to be worked on. So if you're really weak in contract law, you know what I'm saying? He'll guide you on how to better study or energize that part of your mind so you can do the things you need to pass the bar exam. Hmm. 
You know how I figure out what things I need to work on in my life? Besides the holy blowjob? Yeah. I just look at the areas that are, like, most fucked up. <laughs> That's how I know I need to work on those things. I've worked very hard on that. I've talked to many, many drug dealers. Um, you know, and, and now when you can actually purchase the weed at, uh, you know, percentages of THC, I, I still only get but so stoned, so... I don't, mean, I don't mean that. I mean, like, fucked up in my life. Like, like I fucked up uh, this marriage or fucked up a job or, you know. It shows you where my mind that, 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 that tells um, me, like, that's, like, those are areas of my life that I need to work on. Yeah. And, and that's really, you know, we're, we're back to now um, the fact that the world imposes limitations on us. Mm-hmm. Right? If you didn't fail, you wouldn't got to a better place. I was just saying this in a post in Reddit yesterday. You know, when I was in college, um, first I was going to save the world by being, the, you know, the next Jim Morrison. I was writing great songs and blah blah blah, and they were all going, you know, I'll get off the stage, I'll get that recording contract, you know, and and of course that's literally as stupid as it sounds. Um, you know, then, you know, I got out of college and I joined my first magical lodge and I was going to build a great magical lodge and sell tarot books and I'll lecture and blah, blah, blah. And that is as stupid as it sounds, you know. Uh, but all along the way, because today I own the Gnostic Church of Light and it's in, really imbibed my writing career. It's helped me to explore the depths of my consciousness in much deeper ways than I ever have before. Mm-hmm. And... um I realized that I've been refining that stupid idea all along and my will has come forward and shown itself to me by what I've been doing all along. (laughs) So it's all about what you do and you're going to do some stupid things. You're going to get fired from this job and you're going to marry the wrong girl and this and that. But each time we learn from it and as we learn from it, we get richer and richer because of it. So when you're in, finally in that good marriage, first of all, you appreciate it. When you finally get that good job, you appreciate it. And you realize that it's an extension of yourself, and she's an extension of yourself, and the world around you is an extension of yourself. Your mind has reached that guy on the stage. That's pretty beautiful. <laughs> I, I like it. It really works, and it works for all of us. You know, getting the knowledge and conversation of the Holy Guardian Angel is not about having some angel projected from yourself that now tells you, go over here, he's the better drug dealer. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It's not telling you that at all. I I had one spiritual teacher inside of the name that kept giving us this crap of, my angel spoke with your angel, and you shouldn't do that because your angel says that's not a good idea. (laughs) Petty ass angels. (laughs) Exactly. Okay, um, the, the life is a journey, it's a learning experience, it's, it's a growth object. Grow. Get more knowledge. Yeah, what else is there to do? There's a few other things. To really? Do. <laughs> Only function at the level of knowledge that you have. I'm not too sure about my level of knowledge sometimes, but I really like what you said though, because I you know, I played in a, a band and had those unrealistic things, and and and, and, and you know, my whole path just sort of led me here, you know. And, and the whole yeah. time I've been reading books on 
things like tarot and Kabbalah and mysticism and Buddhism and Hinduism and, and all kinds of different mystical traditions, anything that I can find on it, you know. And we were for some reason, for some show. reason, that's important. I don't know why. <laughs> well, you've done 500 programs. Yeah. Um, we were talking before we started recording. Um, and that's that's something that's coming from inside of you. That's some some driver or drives that have um, greater power inside of you than other drive or drives. And you have been learning all these things. Now, maybe you haven't figured out yet where all that's taking you. Mm, no, I haven't. But you're having a pretty good time if you've done 500 programs. You're having a pretty good time doing what you're doing. And I've learned and a lot. <laughs> yeah, you've learned a lot. Um, it shows me that you know you really are in touch with your angel in a lot of ways. Eventually, it's all going to come together. It's going to be very conscious, and you're going to have that little peak aha experience, and you're going to understand what it's all about, and that will be your enlightenment, hmm. that feeling of light that generates the aha experience. There's an old story of, of uh, two monks. One is the master, the other is, is the disciple or the caleb. And they're both at work in a, in, a, in a field, and they're both carrying straw, hay on their back, bales of hay. And um, they're hunched over from the weight of the hay, and they're walking along, and the disciple says to his master, he says, Master, uh, tell me what enlightenment is. And they keep walking, and the master says, this is before enlightenment. And then they, he stops, and so the disciple stops, and the master stands up, puts down his bale of hay. And he says, this is enlightenment. Then he picks up the bale of hay, he's hunched over, they continue walking, and he says, this is after enlightenment. <laughs> so enlightenment is that peak experience where you reach a certain level of understanding. Yeah. Of knowledge, of gnosis. That's all it is. You know, it's not magical anything. That, that's true. All you have to do really is read my book, Enlightenment Guaranteed. The only book on Zen you'll ever need. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. And that helps with more enlightenment, especially if it's a New York Times bestseller. No, it's definitely <laughs> <Okay>. not. <laughs> but think of the enlightening moment. The first time you kissed a girl, that was an enlightening moment. Yeah. The first time you discovered your favorite band, that was an enlightening moment. The day you bought your house, that was an enlightening moment. You know, um, the day you discovered your favorite book, that was initiatory. It led you to your next book and your next book and the next book and made you write one. These are, this is enlightenment. We get the, we get these little peak experiences all the time. And you're right. And the proof of it all is in what we do. There are those that say they're enlightened and they do nothing. There are those that do and may not say they're enlightened, but you can see from the fruit of what they've done that they truly are. It's mm. funny. I remember the book that started me on all this. It was Eden Gray. The, I think it just it's just called How to Read Tarot or something like that. It was an aha moment, right? Yeah. Yeah. The, the, the last chapter was on Cabal, and it's like, well, you might not really need to know this, but. I'm going to put it in here anyway. And, and 
I, 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 I'm familiar with Eden Gray. I can't say that I've ever actually read anything, but I would guess it was a stupid book by my standard now. But yeah. I remember being mm-hmm. in that position when I first read a book like that, and one maybe even dumber than that, and I thought it was the greatest book in history. So in those moments of enlightenment, you're aware that you're going along a certain path. And that path, it sets you on that course. You know, Luke Skywalker discovers that his parents have been murdered and he's set on a certain course. Well, it doesn't have to be that drastic. You can just be reading a book by Eden Gray. Mm-hmm. Same thing. <laughs> Same old shit. <laughs> so, so do you think that secret, not, well, that's not, it's obviously not a secret anymore, but knowledge like or philosophy that's passed down through Kabbalah, do you think that has an effect on how society has evolved and will continue to evolve? Or do you think it'll just fade, sort of fade out into obscurity and that'll be it? Everything has an effect on how society has evolved or should evolve or should have evolved. Everything has happened exactly as it should. And even that pebble that's now being thrown in a lake by two campers right now is changing the world. Okay, everything you do, everything you think, everything that happens feeds into the mass of humanity. And we begin to evolve as the earth begins to spin. In other words, we've always been evolving. The earth has always been spinning. Mm-hmm. And the, so has, you know, the uh, solar system and the uh, galaxies spinning around, the, you know, the, the other galaxies. And, and, and everything is alive and everything moves. And, and how that all plays out in particular, well, on the one hell, we're back in that fishbowl again. But on the other level, we can go anywhere we want to go. And if you want to be mindless and just watch TV when you get home from work every day with your feet up in the air, that's one thing. If you uh, you know, want to be a workaholic and work from 6 a.m. to midnight every single day because you've got a passion for law or a passion for you know, your, your food vendor business, um, it doesn't matter. We're all building... Uh, the world as it really truly is and making it become and it's becoming in every moment and life is not static you're not going to get to a state of enlightenment is why I hate this phrase and and as if that now it's all over we're constantly becoming we're constantly going at it I'm not the same as I was yesterday I might not see the subtle difference Mm -hmm. but I'm so much more knowledgeable whatever that might be just like I got one more gray hair (laughs) <laughs> or one less hair. Great. So we kind of have to wrap it up because we got started late. But uh, but as you know, though, you're, you're, you're always welcome on pretty much <laughs> anytime you want. And um, Like I told you last time, just let me know and I'll be happy to be there. Yeah, I really enjoyed this conversation. It went in some really interesting directions. Um, but before we wrap it up, where can people find you, find your church, find your books? Um, thanks for saying LVX before again. Um, the Gnostic Church of LVX, L period, V period, X period. And that's the Latin word for light looks. And, um, you can find us, uh, you'll find me directly on our Reddit church group on, uh, our X church, uh, whatever you call X Twitter, uh, mm-hmm. thing. 
those are the two places you'll find me. I've just come off Facebook because I'm sick of being treated like a child on Facebook. Um, going into Facebook jail, and I'm just I'm done with it. Um, but you can find me on. I still have on my phone. I still have uh, what's that text function that they have? Uh, textbook uh, Facebook Messenger. Mm-hmm. Um, we're also on um, uh, TikTok. And the other Facebook version of TikTok, we're on that. My nephew actually runs that. Hmm. Um, uh, both TikTok and what do you call it again? Logenstein, whatever that Facebook thing is. And um, but I, I really appreciate people coming on to our Reddit subreddit, uh, the Gnostic Church of Light, because you can interact with me directly. I love a conversation. I love a dialogue. I want to be challenged. Hmm. I, you know, I, I, I want. You know, I want conversation. Obviously, I have a blog, uh, Paul Joseph Rovelli at Blogspot. Um, the church has a blog on WordPress. I think it's Gnostic Church of Light. I have a stub stack. This is modern Gnosticism. Uh, all of these things are approachable. And um, you can messenger me and, and, and find all of these things. I think I'm messenger. I think I'm Paul Joseph Rovelli on Messenger. Yeah, you are. But, you know, I'm ready to a message function. Just message me and say, hey, I want to chat. Can we talk? I'll, we'll talk on the phone. We'll talk on Zoom. We'll talk on um, the other one, the Facebook version, mm-hmm. uh, WhatsApp. Um, so I'll FaceTime. We'll, uh, you know, old-fashioned phone call. We can email um, Paul Joseph Rovelli at roadrunner.com or... You could even do a, a church email, which is uh, gcl at amhr.org. Um, and, you know, there's a thousand ways to get a hold of me. And so if you're interested and you want to get in front of me, like my uh, six-year-old English teacher told me when I didn't bring homework in, she said, where there's a will, there's a way. <laughs> well, you could also go to pauljosephrovelli.com. Uh, yes, yeah, so you could do pauljosephrovelli.com. I have that uh, website. It's, it's about tarot, as a matter of mm-hmm. fact. Um, but I don't think there's email connected no, there's with no that. Connect. Hmm. Yeah, there's no connect there for that. So um, just if you want to read some of my ideas on tarot um, and you don't feel like buying my whole tarot workbook, and you basically get it right there. <laughs> you know, uh, Look up my name online. Just type in Paul Joseph Ravelli. You'll find lots and lots of web links for me. So if you can't find me through one of those web links... Um, You'll find me through some of the web links of people that hate me. And that could be fun, too. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks for being on. And I'll put some of those links in the notes of this episode. And it's been a pleasure having you. And just hang I appreciate on. It. <laughs> I'll look forward to, to uh, looking at this again. Yeah, it'll be good. And uh, hang on for a moment. And I'm going to just play the outro. There you go.
also buy the book Enlightenment Guarantee. It's the only book on film that you'll ever need. You can find it on Amazon and it will change your life. Because remember, everything that it says was first imagined. If you loved what you listened to today, don't forget to rate, review, subscribe, and share. Recording stopped.